So what time does the 7 o'clock meeting start? 7 o'clock. Very good. Um, welcome to Position of Neutrality. Welcome to New Freedom. Oh, you can do better than that. Yeah, thank you. Hey, all of 2023, we've been opening with a prayer, and Chaplain Lee is in the house to help us with that. Yeah. And then we'll get running. Let's all stand to our feet. Where's all the excitement at? We're getting ready to step into step one. Is that right, Joe? All right. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you for this day and another opportunity to be in your presence. We ask you, Lord, to come in, speak into the lives of these, your people. We ask you, Father, right now that you will use your manservant tonight just to speak by your power. We recognize that we're going into the first step, admitting that we are powerless, but we need you tonight. So we thank you. And we ask you, Lord, to come in. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor in advance. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And let everyone say, Amen. Thank you very much for that, Chap. Thanks, everybody. Um, what do we got? We got the sound right? We're going to kill somebody in here. Uh, so I was told tonight by Brian, who leads our media team, that I should give a special shout out, and I'm gonna need help of everyone in the room with this. This particular streaming and everyone going forward will be going to our friends back on the yard. So to all of you on the yard, we are preparing a place for you. We can't wait to welcome you here. That's kind of a big deal because they're, they don't get to see stuff this fresh. So we're, we're excited, and, and now they know you're excited, so that's all cool, right? Um, so Sean, uh, not Sean, Chap told us that we were going to get into step one, and we are, and I want to warn you in advance, I have never individually or collectively helped anyone get through a step one experience without having some highs and some lows. So I'm going to apologize in advance if... This brings something up in you, but what we're trying to do is call your attention, these experiences, because collectively these experiences result in a redemption. But we have to understand the gravity of an admission of powerlessness. It's not simply admitting I got a problem. It's admitting that I have a problem that I know of and absolutely no power of my own to escape from it. Most of us know the experience, but we try and block consciousness of that experience. So I'm going to show you some things about this book because it's a book of testimony, and over the years people have added to it and taken from it, and it's never a good idea to add to or take from a roadmap to redemption. Yeah. Does that make sense? So if you open your book, the very beginning of the book, I'm not going to lift the book up because mine's old. I don't have to. Pages are coming out. <laughs> the title of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, 
the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Now, we started calling it the big book, and people lost the idea. The title is telling you what it is. It is their testimony. And now we're going to go a little further to the, forward to the first edition, and they're going to tell you who it is that is the storyteller. Does that make sense? So the forward of the first edition says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of the book. They put precisely how we have recovered in italics. Why do you imagine they did that? Probably want me to concentrate on the fact if they wrote down precisely how they recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to up to that time people did not recover from. It might make sense rather than to add my spin to it that I just thoroughly follow their path, which they'll talk to me about later. Does that make sense? So the we isn't us, hasn't been us in lots of years. It's the first 100. And that helps us to understand the gravity of the teaching. Does it help a little bit? Okay. So the main purpose of the book is to show you precisely how they recovered. So what I try and do at this group is not tell you anything about what this book says to you, but show you how I find my experience in it and encourage you to have your experience with it. Does that make sense? And you may not have the same experience with me or or not, but the point is, is to gain access to this experience of power within us. So at some point you may have a low spirit, or you may have a revelatory spirit, or you may have an inspiration that gets you going, but one way or another, I'll know what's happening in the room because it's one spirit, and I'll call it to your attention, because we would cheat you to talk to you about the power we call God without a demonstration. That's good. All right, I'm going to jump from there to... The forward to the second edition, and I'm going to jump down to XVII, the last paragraph, or the second to the last paragraph of that, they tell you a little thing that we like people to know if you've been in lots of recovery rooms and, and you've heard all kinds of stuff about why we take the approach we do to the manner of living witness to in this book. Fair enough? So it says, it's now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. So that they were more than 100 men and women back in one. By this time, they're in the thousands. And they're thinking, it's time we take this thing out for a walk. Get it out of Akron in a little neighborhood in New York and let's tell the world. Okay. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. The fledgling society, which had been nameless now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So the fellowship had no name. They wrote a book about their experience in 1939, the first 100, and their experience with the first several thousand, about precisely how they recovered. And then they named the fellowship after the book, not the other way around. So in a very real way, if you're not in this book, you're not in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're in the fellowship. Does that make sense? 
Not because we say so, because they said so, and they documented in the text. Okay. So that's our house cleaning for the night, the housekeeping matter. So let's now jump over to the doctor's opinion, and let's see what the doctor's opinion is. I'm going to start um, over in... I'm going to get into the doctor's expanded text tonight. So I'm going to be an XXVII. And I'm going to jump later, clear to the bottom of that page. So Roman numeral 27, bottom of the page. And the doctor says, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. So what is the doctor telling us about that obsessive nature we found when we put substances in our body. Yeah, it, it's physical. Most of my opiate addict friends know that. A lot of, you have to do some serious drinking to learn that about drinking. Any of you make it all the way to where you had delirium tremens and you really detox from alcohol? Oh good, I love it when I'm in a room full of my own. Okay. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure, to Sean's point, that's why they want me to go to detox, before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So I'm going to have to get physically freed so I can think clear enough to accept what they have to offer. Make sense? Okay. So we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. So I know over the years we've heard lots of jokes about the allergy. In fact, most of us read right past it because it seems silly. Any of you in that bunch that, like, I just don't get the allergy thing? Yeah, it's it's weird concept. It's a word we don't use in everyday language about something like that, right? So in medical parlance, he said it may be a manifestation of an allergy. He doesn't know, but... A physician watching something he can't explain would describe it in medical terms, so he says it's a phenomenon he doesn't understand, but it may be the manifestation of an allergy, this abnormal reaction. So what I need to know is how many drinkers do I have in the room? Good, good smattering of you, good. How many of you, when you drank alcohol, discovered that it energized you? Yes! So that's an abnormal reaction to a sedative. How about my opiate addicts? How many of you, when you'd get lit up, got lit up? And when you were out, everyone thought you were on. Oh, they're all strung out again. Look at them. When I was all... When I'm strung out, I'm out vacuuming the yard, every, you know. Right? That's an abnormal reaction. Are you with me? Okay. So we need to get that because if we had read the, the author's opinion of the doctor's opinion, if we don't get that part, we ain't going to accept any of it. That this is physical. Okay. All right. So the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So you ask yourself, have you ever experienced that inability to control once you started? If you've ever done it, then you win we know you're not an average temperate drinker. 
We don't know you're an alcoholic yet. We haven't tried to do that. We're just, I'm not average. For many of us, that's good news, right? <laughs> Who wants to be average? Okay. So it says these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So how many of you had problems with things other than alcohol, but then you found the same difficulty in resisting? How many of you started with alcohol and then you solved your alcohol problem with a little methamphetamine solution? So you can never safely do that in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, has that happened to you? Once having lost their self-confidence, has that happened to you? Their reliance upon things human. Their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Any of you relate to that? Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. How many of you had people begging you to stop? If you love me, you'd stop. If you don't stop, I'm putting you, I'm revoking your probation or your parole. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. They're talking to you about the entire model for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and, in fact, the entire model for this place. For those of you online, our people, for the most part, our peers. And we're able to talk to people about an experience we've had and we're obvious examples of being redeemed from that condition. And we're able to speak to people with depth and weight because we're not talking to them from some judgmental pulpit. We're talking to them about the same thing you see in me is possible for you. That's a fact, right? In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So we're going to have an experience of powerlessness, and then we're going to call your attention to a power within you that you've gained access to, and we're going to start moving through that, and then eventually, by the third step, we'll be enjoying this power to get, through, get started on this manner of living. Does that make sense? Okay. So then I'm going to jump from... There, over to Bill's story, and I think I want to start in five. I don't like to spend a lot of time in the doctor's opinion because most of us, by the time we get to these kind of rooms, we've heard a lot of doctor's opinions. <laughs> a few other people's opinions. So, Page five of Bill's story, he starts to talk about his journey where he was starting to become aware. He talked about the fun he was having. He talked about coming back from war. But now he's starting to become aware. So I'm going to take you to a place where you started to become aware that while you thought you were doing something because you wanted to, you were starting to realize you were doing something because you had to. Any of you relate to what I'm talking about? Okay. So he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Any of you sort of consciously take yourself to the place in your addiction where you didn't get up and go get hooked up because you wanted to, you knew you had to. Like, if anything's going to happen today, this has got to happen now. Okay. 
Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. So that's his story. You can substitute in there whatever you need to for yours. Does it make sense? Because we're just trying to find ourselves in his. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I'd pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. How many of you would shake it off a little bit, go hit your hustle, get a few dollars, go pay back the dope man or the bar or wherever you had to pay so you could get back on the hook again? Did it go on for a while? Bill said this went on endlessly. And I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Where's my drinkers? Some of you really feel that, right? All right, so a tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Any of you wake up so sick that you had to get a few drinks to get less sick? Where's my drinkers? Any of you have to drink it, throw it up in a cup, drink it again? <laughs> they ain't going to sell it to me till I get right, so we're going we're gonna to get this right before we go. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Now, he's talking about the state of mind. See, I'm behaving in this completely incomprehensible way, but then to, to you, even though I'm completely out of control, I'm going to try and convince myself this is exactly how I manage this. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. I mean, maybe you had someone with you watching your nuts, and every once in a while you'd pull it out for a minute, and they'd be like, okay, all right, don't do it again. Okay, hope you're not easily disappointed. <laughs> then he says, gradually things got worse. Now he's described something that most normal folks wouldn't think that it could get much worse than that. But for those of us who have been in it, when did that happen? Okay. So this is what it looks like to gradually get worse to Bill. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Any of you ever had that happen? Pulled your head out, hit your hustle. Found you a good one. It's going to be good. I'm going to get paid. It's all going to be, by God, I think I'll go celebrate this upcoming windfall. And you ever done that? Bill said, then I went on a prodigious bender and that chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. How many times did you have that? I'm, I'm talking about I was trying to convince myself I was having fun. I was trying to convince all the people watching me it wasn't that big a deal. And then I realized, I can't even do this anymore. So This had to be stopped. I saw that I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. 
Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Do you remember the time when you absolutely not going to pick up, not even one? And then sometime later in the day or the week, thought, perhaps I overreacted. <laughs> Bill says, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? When he's putting a question mark, any time in this book, when they put a question mark, they want us to go inward. Eyesight without insight is spiritual blindness. So if this is happening, I've got to start questioning my thinking and my emotions and those types of things, right? So he's starting to show us this journey that all of us have been on where we're realizing this is really getting bad and we're still hoping no one's noticed. I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? How many of you got there where you started questioning your own sanity? How did you deal with that question? Sean said suicide attempts. How many of you got that far? And some of you had suicidal ideations probably. How many of you just kind of pushed it off? Things will be better later after a drink. Okay, so he says, I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. So he's talking about a brief time in sobriety when he went from, oh God, please deliver me from this, to I got this. Any of you had ever had that, more than one pass at this? So when confidence is replaced by cocksureness, what's happening is I'm confusing the experience of grace with the illusion of control. And so we, we just need, some of you are feeling that. Who's feeling that? And the grace goes with us for a while, folks. So if you're thinking that God doesn't know where you've been and isn't meeting you where you are, that's what we're trying to call your attention to tonight. All right, so he said, I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time at all, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. How many of you have had that happen? Had just some random reason to come in contact with something, and then even not with no intention of doing it, but all of a sudden did something. And then you're all of a sudden going, oh, how did this happen? Anybody? Should be a lot more hands, right? because I know where most of you came from. And, uh, <laughs> okay, so it says, as the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I'd manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. So, and I did. So how many of you got there? And see, he's still talking about the delusion that after he puts it in his body, there's any other outcome that can happen. Once I put it in my body, all bets are off. I mean, I can sometimes control my drinking, but I can't enjoy it. And the likelihood of me stopping after one, realizing I've made a mistake, is not that great. Okay. So, so the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. 
So you got to go there with him because he's talking about an experience of a defeated spirit, remorse, horror, hopelessness. And if you've never gone back to active addiction from a period of sobriety, have you at least had one of these drunk dreams or drug dreams in your sobriety and you can relate to the remorse, horror, how do I cover this up? How do I, how can I do, anyone know what I'm talking about? Because we're trying to move you out of here down to here so you can get with them. Yeah? The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. You ever get hooked up again after a period of time, and you knew it was going to be a train wreck? It's not going to be a little train wreck. It's going to be an epic train wreck. And there's seemingly nothing I can do to stop it. Anyone been there? I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. He's talking, taking us to a thing where he's starting to see the world move beyond his condition. How many of you had an experience of realizing that the world was moving on without you. Yeah, and how many of you can feel that to this day when we talk about it? Because that's an experience of powerlessness. So we want you to know powerless is not a, it's an experience, it's not a concept. Okay, so he says that was a hard thought. How many of you went to that thought? Yeah, because it takes you to a place we really don't want to be, doesn't it? But we got to go there, right? This is the experience of powerlessness, because until I know the experience of powerlessness, I will not be able to confess the experience of powerlessness. Over the years, people would just say, you just admit you got a problem. That's not what it said. It said, we admitted we were powerless. And that's a whole deeper experience, right? Okay. All right, so should I kill myself? I mean, tonight or? <laughs> no, but Sean's going with us to that we've had those thoughts, right? Sometimes it'd be easier to exit than just continue letting everyone we care about down again. Okay. No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. So how many of you started having prescriptions around and things like that and thought maybe I could just OD and slide off? Okay. Or street drugs, whatever. I mean, I'm convinced a lot of ODs are just that. You know, screw it. Let me load this bitch up and go, right? Um, There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical torture, physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to the lower floor lest I suddenly leap. The doctor came with a heavy sedative. How many of you... 
found out if you went in a serious enough alcohol condition, went somewhere, sometimes they would prescribe a little Ativan or a little Valium. See, I never knew I had an alcohol problem. I thought I had a Valium deficiency. <laughs> what happened to you once they started giving you those scripts? I found out that there was a better living through chemistry model, and if I just tweaked it just right, I could do both and get right where I needed to go. Anyone else? So Bill says, next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. I don't know how many of you drinkers were underweight but bloated. And I don't even have to say anything to my methamphetamine friends. <laughs> we understand 40 pounds underweight, at least. Some of you guys, I've seen them, you might not have been 40 pounds total weight. <laughs> That's why we feed them here, Lance. <laughs> My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So the, the first message of depth and weight actually did not come from a peer to Bill. The first one came from Dr. Silkworth, who said, dude, you're sick both bodily and mentally. In other words, you didn't drink your way into this condition. Your body is predisposed to this condition. You're, you're in a different class. And we forgot to tell people that over the years, and we just started working on the mental, and we don't talk them about the physical, and, and, and then people don't feel deserving or they don't understand what the discovery of the doctor was but Bill finally realized that he was worthy of a healing and he needed a healer. Does it make sense? Okay so he said it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. So how many of you couldn't understand why you kept making bad choices? How many of you had people tell you, hey, why do you keep making bad choices? <laughs> what they're trying to tell you when they refer to it as the insanity of the first drink is I was insane before I took it, therefore it was not a choice. You cannot make a choice with an unsound mind. Does that make sense? Now, that's not an excuse, it's just an explanation for the way I respond to a condition I have I don't know I have. Yeah. So it says, though it often remains strong in other respects, my incredible behavior in the face of the desperate desire to stop was explained. So I want to stop, but I cannot. In another chapter, they say the alcoholic at certain times will not be able to bring to consciousness, awareness of being aware, with sufficient force, the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. He's without defense against the first drink. 
So that's what they are telling us what it is. And so this whole thing, you're not willing or what? No, we haven't treated your condition in such a way to acknowledge the power you're going to need to be relieved of that bodily condition and that mental obsession long enough to walk out and get well. Does it make sense? Okay. So understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. How many of you have fared forth in high hope with self-understanding? How many of you found self-understanding was comforting but not sufficient eventually? For three or four months, the goose hung high. What do you think happened after the three or four months? The goose dropped. Very good. That was awesome. Yeah, I'm thinking the goose was less high because I, I took that goose as high. That's what happened. Okay. So I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Then he says, but it was not. We're already with him. We're already laughing about it because we know, right? For the frightful day came when I drank once more. Why does he describe it as a frightful day? How many of you after you really wanted to stop and stay stopped and then you got back in it and you realized what he said? When he says frightful day, he ain't kidding. Like this is, this is going to get ugly. Okay. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. Look at the picture he's painting. I don't know if any of you are skiers. I'm not a skier, but I've watched those guys do the ski jump. And I have seen that their feet are on the ground and then they're 50 feet in the air, seemingly. That's how my addiction fell. When I let that grill out of the cage, I had no idea that the earth was falling out from under me. Anyone know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, I'm watching all the things I would never do, and I'm blowing right through them. People would say things to me like, if you ain't hit bottom, quit digging. Well, I didn't think to grab a shovel when I fell off the fucking cliff. (laughs) Ain't digging, I'm in free fall. (laughs) Apparently, some of you relate to me. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. So how many of you knew it was going bad, then you tried to go ahead and wreck this train, and then eventually ended up one way or another back in some kind of treatment or whatever? Okay. So they said this was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. So they're trying to talk to us with gravity, but we all sort of suspect that anyway, right? Death, insanity, or institutionalization, they drill it into us, and we're watching it all coming up. Okay, most of us are hoping the death part comes sooner rather than later. We get it far enough out there. Says they did not need to tell me why. That's what he said, I knew. Remember when you started getting that news from them? You keep doing this, you're going to die. Yeah, no shit. Tell me when. Right? Straight up. Okay. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. So now he's starting to talk about the realization that he isn't going to come out of this. Any of you remember that? 
At some point, before we do anything else, we get to the point where not only can I not stop it, but I can't even summon the will to try and stop it anymore. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of thoughts who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. So can you go with him there, even if you don't like the use of his words, that place where I have let everyone down so magnanimously that I don't even think they care anymore? And I sure don't care anymore. Anyone know where I'm... No words can describe that, can they? That's, that's a depth that even if we screamed, we doubt if anyone would hear. Okay. Says so quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I was overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Substitute heroin, substitute fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamine, whatever. Okay. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Any of you ever had a fear-based sobriety? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? He said, then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or I would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. So he's having a revelation. That's an exclamation point. So he was at the point of absolute defeat. He, he had summoned the will one more time, but it was all based in fear. Then he said, screw it, and he took a drink, and he was off and running again, and now he's in a total wreck, and, and here's where we find ourselves. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. So I like to call your attention. A lot of people start talking about, you know, I, this is what I did to get sober. This is what I did to stay sober. And I want to take you through my experience. I did nothing to get sober, and I can't do anything to stay sober. And I know this because the guy who did all of that just wasn't capable of it. I know somewhere prior to when I all of a sudden started going to a detox that I stayed in and didn't ACA out of, and I asked someone to help me, and they introduced me to this power and then this manner of living, I didn't have the power to do any of that, nor did I have the knowledge to do any of that, and I realized in that redemption that through that process, I still wasn't doing anything of my own will. That's why I know it wasn't me. I was a dead shell of a man, and I was not going to try and get up. And then I was introduced to this power through this man who said, walk with me and I'll show you. And one day, I wasn't even looking back. And life didn't get good right away, but it was different. Does that make sense? So, see, he said what it looked like for him, this fourth dimension of existence, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. 
happiness, peace, and usefulness. What I sought in alcohol, what I sought in all these other chemicals, what I sought in power and prestige in the world, I found in this encounter with this power Bill's talking about. Does that make sense? And he's talking to me about a progressive recovery because I was in the grip of a progressive illness. Does that make sense? Okay. So near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen with a certain satisfaction. I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. Drinkers? Were you hiders? Math addicts? Were you hiders? You opiate addicts didn't hide it. You were slamming that shit as quick as you get it. So he's setting the stage for us. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. You guys remember that, where you had to hide stuff around because even though they knew we were drinking, they didn't know how much we were drinking, and they didn't know how sick we got if we didn't keep drinking? Okay. So he says, my musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. They put that in italics. When they do that, it's significant. So Bill's trying to tell you, how many of you took your addiction far enough out that you didn't have too many people that could hang with you anymore. <laughs> but maybe you maintain one, and you could look at them and go, at least I'm not that bad yet. So that's who this cat is to Bill. Ebby is, I'm not that bad yet. And he's in New York, wants to come visit, and he's sober, and Ebby don't go anywhere sober. So you got a picture of who this guy is now? Okay. says, it was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. What condition? Sober. sober. Ebby don't go nowhere sober. Okay. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. He's, he's trying to get you to see how impossible it is that this cat's there sober. Dude was supposed to be locked up. Of course, he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. So again, the friend that at least I'm not that bad, and I don't have to hide it from him. This is going to be cool. I have to hide almost from everybody now. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility, the very thing an oasis. And then he says drinkers are like that. So he wants us to try and relate to him. How many of you understand what an oasis is? What is it? It might be a mirage, or it might be water in the middle of a burning desert. So can you relate to him saying, I don't know if this is a mirage or water, but either way, I'm in. Right? Because he's in that place of hopelessness. Does it make sense? He's painting a picture for us. Okay. Then he, he said, drinkers are like that. The door opened, and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. Now, I want to point out to you that that is a weird way for a man to describe his drinking buddy. 
True? Okay. Then he says, there was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? This is all happening within him. How many of you, after you're all tore up and you finally met somebody that you thought you could talk to, and you just knew that you knew that you knew that this was somebody different than what I've encountered before. This is someone something's happened for. Okay. So he goes on to say, I pushed a drink across the table. How many of you have ever done that? They're sober. I know they should stay sober, but I'm not sober, and I damn sure ain't staying sober. So he said he refused it. What are we thinking when they refuse it? Might go right to more for me. And we might start thinking, what's this fucking guy a cop? What, what is up? <laughs> so he says, disappointed, but curious. So right, This is going on with him. I, that's why I want you to go with him. I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. So finally he asked, come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly, he said, I've got religion. Now think about this. I don't care what your religious leanings are. Here you are, booze hidden around the house. Wife's gone for a little while. I ain't that bad yet, sitting there with me. And I ask him, what's up? And I'm damn sure not stopping drinking. And he says, I got religion. The, the fun meter goes, <laughs> like, oh boy, here goes a sermon, right? And the, the reason we're setting the stage is because that is the expectation of anyone, regardless of religious upbringing, because I am neck deep in it right now. And so it's, here we go, okay. So he says, I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. Did you follow him through that? Okay. But here's the kicker. He did no ranting. Ebby did not behave the way Bill expected him to. Bill had already had that encounter of a non-peer, a physician that had given him that little piece of information, that revelation that his condition, although a condition he had, he hadn't produced it. Does it make sense? In, in a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. So, I don't know why we run from this, but what they always knew then, and what we should be telling the new person now, if we really care about recovery, is that we have a religious idea that God dwells in you. Power. And we... Power... Power dwells in you. That's the religious idea. And we have a practical program of action that will prove that fact to you through you. Does that make sense? 
Why would we not dish it just like that? Because we're afraid. But Okay. So it said, he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. Notice how he didn't say he came to pass the meeting list. I'm not going to tell you which YouTube channel to watch. How does one pass an experience along? With depth and weight. I got this religious idea. You know how bad I was, Bill. I drink every day no matter what. They were locking my ass up for life. I was criminally insane because of my drinking. Two guys I didn't know came and got me. They said they'd take responsibility for me. They introduced me to this power, and the result's self-evident. I'm here now to get you, Bill. So... He said, I was shocked but interested. Can you understand why he'd be shocked but interested? Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless, he said. He said, he talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. Now he's talking about his first encounter of the Spirit. He's talking about a movement of the the Spirit which produced an emotion in him. So when he thought about his grandfather on his deathbed, said, oh, I believe in God, but I'm not going to let that preacher tell me how to believe. I am unafraid. I'm going home. And Bill thought about that, and it made him swallow hard. Because he, you ever had that happen to you where you all of a sudden had emotion? You didn't know where it came from? How many of you just had it happen to you again? That's the power we call God. That didn't come from up here. That happened in you. Okay? So he said that wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. Remember the wartime day in Winchester Cathedral? He's going to war. He's afraid. He started praying, even though he's a famous atheist, sort of on the fence with agnosticism. Okay, so he's remembering that he was comforted in that moment. He saw a a gravestone of a soldier who had survived war, right, and drank himself to death, all that stuff. They're going to get into that later, but that's what he's starting to talk about revelations coming to him as he's talking to this guy. Many of you that have sat down with a sponsor and started looking at your life and started properly arming yourself with the facts through it, and all of a sudden you start feeling the spirit, and you think, man, I, way back then this was starting to happen to me, and yet I'm still here. And you start to realize the nature of this power we're talking about. Yeah? Okay. All right. So he said, I'd always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. So can you get there with Bill? He's still not ready to go by the whole thing. He's just like, look, I felt the power. 
I, I believe he believes, and I can't logically define everything I'm living in without something greater than me. Does that make sense? He's starting real basic. Okay. So he said, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. So if you're anywhere near there with him, remember he told you you're going to know power, peace, happiness, and purpose in a way of life that is infinitely greater as you go along. And all you have to do is admit to this encounter at some point in order to get started. If you're students of that other book, confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, and now you're part of the resurrection power. <laughs> okay. All right. So then I'm going to jump from there because we're going to run out of time. And I'm going to jump over to, yeah, I got to get to the bottom of here. I want to get to the bottom of 11. It said, said my, my friend sat before me and he made the point declaration that God had done for him. Oh, that was weak. You guys were almost there. Power had, done, power had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Any of you have your human will fail? How many of you are still alive in here? Good, a good percentage of you. That's always a good start. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Any of you have that happen? Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. This is where the authors are telling you, admission's nice, but it ain't enough. Admitting I'm defeated is not enough. Powerlessness. My friend Brad always liked to talk about, how much power did Lazarus have to come out of that grave? Absolutely none. So powerless is a deeper admission, isn't it? Those of you who are students of that book, some of you went with me there, and you realize it's power to live, right? All right, so then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known, exclamation point. Had this power originated in him, Bill is now thinking about what he's been told and the living witness sitting in front of him. And he knew Ebby, so he's asking, had this power originated in Ebby, that he was now sharing with Ebby in this experience Ebby had brought to him. And then he says, obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me, in me at that minute, and this was none at all. So Bill has taken us to another level of admission at this point, yes? He said, that floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidy. So now he not only was coming to believe because of the encounter, he knew the truth of the miracle sitting before him. Make sense? Okay, so I want to jump from there to page 13, because we're going to run out of time. It says, at the hospital, I was separated for al for, from alcohol for the last time. 
Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. So he went back to treatment for a third time. Any of you ever had more than one go at this? Yeah, so did you ever feel diminished coming back when that happened? The author of most of this book had a few goes. So, okay. It says, there I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him. I want to make a point. Thanks for, for amplifying that. He humbly made this prayer to this God as I then understood him. And I want you to catch that how he then understood him. Because over the years, we've started telling people a God of your understanding. That is patently a lie. That's not what they said. This is not a God of your understanding because you're not we. This is, it's Bill understood him and he understood him to be a miracle maker that he was sitting in front of. He, he, this revelatory power within him. He understood that God was the subject of his experience, not the object of his belief. And it revolutionized him in that moment. Do you understand what I'm saying? God dwells in me, subject to my experience, not the object of my belief. I don't have to believe. I just got to own the experience. To do with me as he would, I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. Who's his newfound friend? Some people think they're talking about Ebby, but Ebby's not newfound and he's not in the room. Power is his newfound friend. Does it make sense? And he said, I've not had a drink since. Notice how he didn't say, I've not had a problem since. <laughs> it's important that we tell people that starting their recovery journey. We didn't remove your problem maker. We just improved your chances of surmounting trouble and realizing that all things we perceive as trouble are simply preparing me for where God's taking me. Okay. You know what? I'm going to stop at that point, but I think we got where we wanted to go. Next week, we'll look at two. Thanks.